Let's open our Bibles to Second Timothy, chapter four. And while you're doing that, let me say that I have been blessed by being here, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. That's generally the way it happens when we when I go to a minister's week, or I know this is a, is a little different, but that there is the, the challenge uh, and encouragement or uh, inspiration or whatever you want to call it from, from uh, being with uh, other, others uh, in, in church leadership. And so thank you for what you put into my life. I'd like to read 2 Timothy 4, 1-8. Well, um, before I read it, let me say one other thing. I apologize uh, for not having a handout uh, of of uh, my outline for the last two sessions on the interpretation and application uh, of the of the word. And if you would, uh, I think I'm going to try to get a handout to uh, Dave, and he can email that email that out to the Midwest. Ministers, and if you're here and you're not uh, on that mailing list, uh, maybe you can get something to me uh, or to um, Dave. Uh, Paul here has. Did I call you Dave or did I call you Paul? Yeah, yeah, okay. But uh, Paul can uh, get you my email address or, or make some connection. Okay, Second Timothy chapter four, one to eight. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am about for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Some years ago, when my dad learned that his digestive system issues that had been troubling him had become untreatable and he was in a terminal situation, that he asked my two brothers and me to come to the house. And one of the first things that he told us was that he was ready, as he said, to face the music. And what he was saying was that he was spiritually and emotionally prepared to face what lay ahead. But he also wanted to finish setting his house in order as he faced the reality of his impending death. And that was a transitional time in our family. We all experience times of transition. Uh, There's those times when we or our children are perhaps left for voluntary service or to marry. Or when we or our or our children uh, pulled up our roots and moved to another state or another province or another country uh, to live. 
And then there are those times when a business or a farm passes from father to son, for example. And our text here that I read represents a transitional time. There's few transitions so sobering as when death is involved. And Paul must have seen the handwriting on the wall that uh, he, had, he was about to die. He had come to the end of the race. And like my dad, Paul called his son to him. His spiritual son, not his biological son, his son in the faith. And although I don't know whether uh, Timothy made it to Paul before Paul was executed, uh, unlike my dad, Paul wrote to Timothy. And in that letter he gave this charge, preach the word. And that charge came not only from Paul, it came from God. It came from the Holy Spirit. And while that charge is immediately addressed to Timothy, we will make the application to all who are called to preach the word or to teach the word, to communicate uh, the word. But particularly, we're thinking about those called to preach the gospel. And I've organized this message about our charge to preach the word around some questions. One is, why are we to preach? And then, what are we to preach? And third, how are we to preach? And so first looking at the question, why are we to preach? And the answer to that is in verse 1 and verses 3 and 4. Now, we might note that the text before us was not Timothy's ordination sermon. Timothy had already been in church leadership for quite some time. He had trained in ministry under the Apostle Paul. And in fact, uh, he had served both with Paul and apart from, from Paul. Younger man that he was, Timothy was nonetheless a seasoned Christian worker. So this charge to preach the word does not represent a beginning. Rather, in this transitional time, it represents a, an emphasis, a priority. And preaching the word should be a priority in our ministry. Now, I want to say, parent, uh, parenthetically, that preaching the word is not our only priority. Pastoring and praying may not be as glamorous as preaching. But they, along with preaching the word, form a trinity of priority, a trinity of emphasis. Uh, we don't need to put everything in a pecking order. We know there is a group of things that are very important, and we need to give priority to, to these things. Our charge to preach the word is given here in Timothy 4 in light of several realities. And the first reality is that we should preach the word in light of Christ's return. Verse 1, I charge thee therefore be God and before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So preach the word in light of Christ's return. Life can become rather routine and constant. One day, one week, one month, one year, fading into the next. And so life goes on. And while it's true that we become more conscious of the, of the end of life as our years rack up, and while we may not scoff at the Lord's return, 
we can live somewhat oblivious of it. Now, preaching is not an exercise for moral betterment. It's not to develop... The main point of preaching is not to develop character and virtue and to practice the golden rule. Preaching is not a pep talk or a motivational talk for the back aches and the heart, heartaches of life. Nor is preaching a platform to decry the social injustices, uh, to, to promote peace, uh, to fret about the, the environment. Not that that's not an important. None of these are important issues. That's not what preaching is all about. We preach because Christ is returning to establish his all-encompassing and everlasting reign. And to judge, he's returning to judge those who are living as well as those who have lived. And he will judge whether we will reign with him or whether we will bow our knees in defeat and condemnation. And so we preach the scriptures which are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. And yes, the grace of God that brings salvation does transform us. And consequently, we must preach the mind and the will of God uh, so that our own minds can be renewed and we can be transformed and we have the particulars of how this transformation uh, should look. What the particulars of what it means to put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So character and virtue and the golden rule and inspiration and encouragement and injustice and living peaceably and taking care of creation is, is all a part of preaching the word, but divorced from the appearing and the, of Christ and his kingdom, such themes lose their power and their urgency. And so preach the word because in light of Christ's return. We also should preach the word in light of passing opportunities. And we see that in verses 3 to 5. Many things in life uh, represent momentary or passing opportunities. For example, when is the best time to buy that cheap airplane ticket? Well, right now, because in five minutes you may not have the opportunity. It'll be, it'll be gone. Uh, we who garden or farm, uh, we know that there's an opportune time to plant and to harvest, or perhaps to make a sale or something like that. And Paul charged Timothy to preach the word, for the time will come when, and to paraphrase it, in which people will be less receptive to the gospel. Isn't there a saying, strike the iron while it's hot? And so, seize the opportunity. Paul is exhorting Timothy to do that, to seize the opportunity, seize the present opportunity. And the loss of opportunity, Paul says, the Bible says, will resolve around an intolerance for truth. And so we have an intersection here with what, what the brother... Uh, Brian, is that what his name is? Brian uh, was, was talking to us about people will have an intolerance for truth. Uh, people will not endure sound doctrine, verse 3. It says, uh, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound teaching. 
Verse 4, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. It's true that among the earth's billions, many people do not follow the truth because they are ignorant. The Bible speaks of this in, in Romans 10 where it says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And so there is a responsibility to preach. Uh, because faith comes by hearing. How shall they hear without a preacher? Because faith comes by hearing and by hearing by the word of God. And so there is an ignorance of the truth and there is a, a need to... To, for people to be informed of the truth. Nevertheless, in one way or the other, and to one degree or the other, rejection of the truth underlies, uh, underlies the ignorance, of people's ignorance. Why are people ignorant? It's because they have rejected the truth. And, and Brian read to us in, in, uh, in Romans, and, uh, you know, Romans 1 there, talks about how that once they knew God, they turned away from God. And you also have the passage there in, in uh, Ephesians 4, where it talks about uh, being not, not knowing the truth. Or however it's stated there, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. So maybe it was your grandfather, or maybe it was your great-great, ever-so-great-grandfather, or maybe it was your father, your parents, that turned away from the truth. But ignorance in... in uh, in the ultimate sense, represents a rejection of truth. Because at one time, everybody knew truth. Noah and his sons and their families, at one point in time, everyone knew truth. And so ignorance, uh, some people are, are ignorant, and maybe they themselves did not purposely reject the truth of the gospel. They're ignorant of it, but somewhere along the line, there was a rejection of truth. Now, Rejection of truth is primarily a moral problem rather than an intellectual problem. If you don't believe it, you haven't tried to evangelize or you haven't been preaching very long. Because you can put the truth out, but people are not necessarily going to accept it. Why? Because they don't want to many times. And so it's a moral problem. We find truth so hard to accept because of unwillingness to surrender to the demands of truth and to change our beliefs and our behavior. Um, and the promise of God, my wife and I, we were called to serve as missionaries in Puerto Rico, and a generation before me, uh, one of my uncles served in a different setting and with um, Virginia Conference as a missionary to Jamaica, and one of the things he told me was that people will change their beliefs, and you might question, well, how deep are they changing their beliefs? But they'll change their beliefs, but when you start to change their practices, that's where it really counts. And so on, on one hand, people will give the impression that they are changing their, their beliefs to a certain degree, but now get down to the nitty of the gritty of how you're going to behave and, and some of your practices, and, and it, makes, it makes a difference. And... Uh, well, anyway, dissatisfied with the hard truth, it says that the people will pursue ideas more to their own liking. It talks here about they will turn their ears from the truth. Uh, it talks about itching, itching ears, um, seeking that which is novel or, or new. They will turn away their hearts from the truth and shall be turned to fables. 
Today's fables among North American conservative Anabaptist people often come in the form of theological and ecclesiastical or church fads promoted by popular authors or gifted speakers or, or uh, effective, able leaders. And I want to make two further comments about these present-day fables. One is that one of, one of these... Uh, one of these comments I want to make is that varying teachings, these varying teachings that people of our people perhaps may be attracted to, are not likely a total fabrication of falsehood. They, they may contain an element of truth. They, but oftentimes they may represent currents that are moving through the uh, evangelicalism, uh, broadly defined, ideas that may or may not be within... Uh, the mainstream of evangelical thought. And of course, evangelicals themselves, in other words, evangelicals is like other groups. Uh, they got people on the margins, they got people on this side, they got people pushing the edge, and so they'll come up. You know, uh, a few years back it was uh, the emergent church, and you know, you'll come up with these different fads within evangelicalism, and then Anabaptists get attracted to these fads that may be somewhat marginal, even if within the evangelical group or may not represent the best of, the, of evangelicals. But even within the group themselves, they may be what they are reading, what evangelicals are reading and interpreting and applying Scripture through the lenses of their own experiences. And I spoke a little bit to that, that previously. The point I want to make is that contrary to what some people would like to think, these attractive and catching beliefs or fads or practices represent other influences other than pristine scripture. Some people like to think, oh, we're finally getting on to the truth. Well, that truth has been, I don't want to say, adulterated or formed through other influences itself. And so it's not just necessarily a clear stream, crystal clear flowing from the fountain of scripture. The second point I'd like to make about these fables is that sometimes Anabaptist people go for the fads and fables because they're experiencing a vacuum in their own setting, which is leaving them empty and makes them vulnerable to feeding someone else's table. Now, we can easily see that in, in a group that, uh, that perhaps is not evangelical, with a small e, in other words, that, that is not a born-again sort of, of conservative Anabaptist group. There are conservative Anabaptist groups that are, that are traditional, and it is, you know, obeying the rules, and so they are really not uh, really coming into right relationship with God, and suddenly they discover the gospel. And then there is a confusion sometimes in their and their minds were about these rules. They have been using practices as a legalism to be right with God, and now they're suddenly freed from using practices as a legalism to get right with God. They don't understand that you dress modestly and simply not, not to get right with God, but as an expression as, of living a Christian life. And there's a lot of confusion. That's the reason all this stuff gets jettisoned out so quick sometimes. There's a misunderstanding. But, so there is that, that group, and sometimes uh, we can be guilty of focusing on moralistic preaching and administration, focusing on the rules, 
on the do's and the don'ts, rather than on preaching that is rooted in Christ and a relationship with God and a life that flows out of that. And so, yeah, I believe that all of us in here believe in the new birth and in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But we can solely get to where our preaching is, is moralistic. It is, you know, we kind of, that's, we're so focused on getting people conformed to a non-conformed position or something, to, to getting the externals right, that, that we are we are missing the heart of the preaching of people having a, a dynamic relationship with God. And so these other things need to be preached. But what I'm saying is sometimes people are attracted to evangelical ideas, perhaps, uh, to evangelicalism, because th- that our, our preaching, perhaps, is too is misfocused, uh, the core of our preaching. Or it might be because of shallow preaching rather than really getting uh, into, the, into the Word. Or it might be an uninviting, an uninspiring, unchallenging uh, church life or failure in pastoral and congregational relationships. There's a number of things that can happen that create a vacuum. And people are looking for something uh, for, for it, that they are attracted then to what seems snazzy and... and and uh, just full of life and where the action is. Well, of course, we know that church life cannot always be where the action is. There are just, uh, it's just like home, you know. There's dishes to be washed and clothes to wash and, and grunt work to do and all that. And there's certain things like that in church life. But I think you get, you get the point that uh, we need to be trying to do a good job in, in our work and in, in preaching the Word so that people are fed and satisfied, and church life is is uh, is enjoyable. So we need to preach the word uh, because of the opportunity. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And uh, so we have there in verse five. But watch thou in all things, endure 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 afflictions, do the work of evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Preach the word because of passing opportunities. Preach the word third in light of our appointed time. I already mentioned that Paul apparently had come to the end of his life and he realized that. And we, there in verses 6 to 8. Now we sometimes use the analogy of the passing of a baton in a relay race to capture the truth that we serve for a time. And only for a time, in our appointed time, the service will pass, and it will become the responsibility of others to carry that baton. I'm under the impression that in the passing of the baton, the one receiving the baton gets up to speed. And then they pass that, they actually are running together a bit. And I think that's the proper way to pass the baton in, in church leadership, that, that, that you run together so that... Uh, the, the, the new bishop that's being ordained doesn't have to start from scratch or something like that, that you are passing that as in a working together uh, relationship. But while in the midst of his race, Paul wrote this about his own sense of responsibility to preach the gospel. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So you've been called here. You've got two choices. Uh, I think my father-in-law said something like this. If you like to do it, you don't have to do it. What are we called to preach? Moving on to second main point. What are we called to preach? And so in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. And, and you know, I started here, Brian read uh, some in, in the passage before, and so, you know, we have this chapter division of... Uh, Paul and Timothy weren't working with chapter divisions. It started back here. Paul was talking about uh, evil men there in chapter 3, verse 13. Evil men who will deceive and be deceived. And he encourages Timothy to faithfulness in what he had learned and been assured of and how from childhood he had been uh, uh, taught the Holy Scriptures which are able to make people wise to salvation and all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for a number of things for our spiritual development uh, so that we can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work and since the word of God is foundational for our salvation for our sanctification and for our service what should we preach? Well, we should preach the word because that's where, that's where it's at. Now, there's a place for reading books other than the Bible, reading doctrinal books, inspirational books, expositional books, books on current issues, books on perennial problems, books on history. There's a place for that. Good reading broadens our perspective and understanding. It enables us to benefit from, from the study and the insights and the wisdom of others. Reading uh, is can can provide depth and enrichment to the soil out of from which uh, out of which we preach. We preach the word, but when we read well, it's like nourishing the soil. It gives us uh, additional capacity. It gives us additional understanding, additional wind, uh, insights. But don't preach those books. Those books are for your inspiration, for your. Uh, enlargement for your uh, uh, benefit. And it will come through in your preaching uh, that, that you have. It's, it's like a, a school teacher. If we don't read, if we don't expand our capacities like a school teacher is only running just slightly ahead of the students. Uh, there was a, a teacher who came and taught at our Christian school one year Oh, yeah, he could teach Spanish. He didn't know Spanish, but he thought he could see ahead of the students. <laughs> and so, um, we don't want to be like that. And I don't mean, I don't want to say that we are more wise or that there are not brethren in the church that have greater capacity than we do who are not ordained. Uh, perhaps there's one sitting there on about the next to the last bench here in the, in the auditorium. But don't preach those books. Don't preach something you downloaded from the Internet. Don't preach a sermon that you fashioned on your computer by cutting and pasting from here and there. Um, and this and that other source, preach the Word. Preach the Word because it's authoritative. When Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were astonished at His authority. He preached not like the scribes. And my understanding is that the scribes' teaching was tedious. It was quoting this and that authority, 
Jesus was the Word and He spoke the Word of God. And Scripture being the Word of God has an authority like none other. It can do what no argument can do. Uh, it convinces and it convicts us of our condition and our need and it comforts us and encourages us in our time as need as well. So preach the Word because it's authoritative. Preach the Word because it represents the divine worldview. My wife... Uh, along with some other ladies, was involved in a Bible study with some Mexican ladies. And they were studying the Gospel of John using a study course from a conservative Anabaptist publisher. And after a number of studies, uh, one lady had a suggestion, and this lady is the one who has stuck it through. Uh, and she said this, let's just read the Bible and you tell us what it, tell us what it means. And going through the Gospel of John... Study course, you know, you had to read and fill in the blank and all this. And I guess it was kind of a little overwhelming. Just, just read the Bible and you tell it. And so, uh, Neoma took, uh, started taking passages from, from the Bible, from Genesis and working the way through and following the storyline of, of the Bible and getting into the Gospels and into the Sermon on the Mount and, and things and reading and telling what the Bible and not only was this lady who grew up in a nominal Catholic setting ignorant of, of, of just basic Bible stories and materials that, that we are aware of, but she didn't have a concept of the big picture of what, of what the Bible was all about. Now, people in our churches may, that we preach to may not be as biblically illiterate as that lady was. They may know something of the Bible storyline, but do they possess and practice a biblical worldview or a humanistic and materialistic one? Those, do they really understand what it is to be serving God and have God as the center of the life, or are they really serving mammon and having mammon and materialistic values as the center of their lives? Do they understand why we're here, what it's all about? I heard a person tell about, um, and, and down more where Marty's mother lives, in south, more in South Georgia, there's a lake there called Lake Blackshear. And Blackshear, Lake Blackshear has got a lot of, a lot of uh, houses uh, along the lake, and people go there, you know, kind of vacation houses like. And this fellow went to a Methodist church, and they had a Methodist church. Uh, apparently the church was on the lake. And you could come in with your boat and, you know, come to church. And they did a lot of cooking there and, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed cooking. And, and he said, and that's what it's all about. Well, no, that's not what it's all about. <laughs> he had the wrong worldview, in a, in a sense. And so do our people uh, preach the word because it represents God's point of view about the world? Preach the word because it brings conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but what is the grist that he uses? He uses the word. And so the word is, is the sword of, of the spirit. Is the, the word is how uh, we become knowledgeable, and, and uh, the spirit uses that. Preach the word because it makes us wise for salvation. It makes us wise for salvation not only because of the storyline of Scripture, but also because we are confronted by God and His holiness. We're confronted by our falling short of that. Uh, 
And the word doesn't just leave us hanging there. It reveals the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so consequently, the Apostle Paul, who was a thoughtful preacher, he apparently was not an elegant preacher, eloquent preacher, but, but he didn't really try to be an eloquent preacher. He said rather, uh, in, uh, in Corinthians, that he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't try to showcase his eloquence. Uh, I don't think he was trying to be uh, coarse and uninviting when he preached, but he was not trying to use Greek rhetoric or something like that, just a, 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 the persuasion, human persuasion. He was preaching Christ and the power of the Spirit. We should preach the Word because it causes growth and maturity in God's children. And so there's that passage there at the, at the end of Second Peter 3, just, just above the text. And then there's the one in Ephesians 3, 13 to 16. But speaking the truth, the truth of God's Word, in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted that which every spirit joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying in love. Preach the word because it equips believers for, for service, for ministry. Uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a passage in Ephesians 4 where it says that God gave to the, to the church some to be apostles, some to be apostles, some to be uh, preachers, teachers, for the work of the ministry, King James, comma, for, uh, excuse me, he gave some to be this for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, I believe there's a comma after that. And it's been pointed out, the Greek has no punctuation. And so, fine translators that they were, they chose to insert a comma there, though, that makes it look like that God has given uh, teachers and pastors for the work of the ministry. It's just one of the things that he's given them for. No, he has given pastors and evangelists and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So, so yeah, we have the work of the ministry. Part of our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so, uh, you're not going to do violence to the inerrancy of the Word of God to take that comma out. And that was not a part of the original text to say that he has given gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Preach the word because it equips believers for the work of the ministry. Not just us as church leaders, but for others as well. Preach the word because it both is both satisfying and stimulating. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, more, yea than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Don't waste your time. And that of your audience with fluff and filler when we have word, the word of God that stimulates the mind and satisfies the soul. So preach the word. Now, point three, how are we to preach? And for that we see in um, 
the words that follow there in verse 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. That's a tongue twister for me to read there. Exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. First, we should be ready to preach. This here, when I talk about how are we to preach, it's not so much addressing method and technique, rather our mindset and our approach to our task of preaching the word. And so we should be ready to preach. It says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Is that referring to being prepared and willing to preach, whether it seems suitable or not? Well, it may be. Perhaps it also, or perhaps it addresses more our attitude toward preaching. J.B. Phillips was a paraphraser. The Phillips um, paraphrase or translation is a paraphrase, and he says it like this. Uh, Be instant. He says, never lose your sense of urgency. Be instant. Never lose your sense of urgency. And another translation goes on to say, press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. Now, just as we men should never lose the all of being married to that girl, neither should we be lose the awesomeness of being called charged with preaching the Word of God. Yes, preaching requires a lot of work, and it can take its toll. But if preaching is just a duty to be performed, an appointment to fill, an assignment to keep, then we might as well pass on the baton. So be ready to preach. Second, we should be, we need to be relevant in preaching the word. And here, intersecting again with Brother Brown. In verse 2, the, the next words say, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. By relevant, I don't mean that we should be, try to be trendy and cool. Uh, Rather, we need to explain and apply the word in varying real-life situations. Someone has suggested that reproving, rebuking, and exhorting almost covers the intellectual, the moral, and the emotional. I don't think that we should just pound a pulpit that that's exactly what that represents, but there's perhaps a linkage there. Reproving carries the idea of convincing. In this case, of convincing someone of being in the wrong. But relevant preaching informs the mind. There is a place that talked in in, uh, Acts where Paul reasoned with the people. Uh, It is not wrong to to use the mind. It is not wrong to reason. I don't, uh, there's not a, a lot of value in arguing with people who don't want to, are not open to the truth. But yet people do need to be all people with honest questions, intellectual questions. And, and they need to be informed. They need to be convinced. They need to be reasoned with. And it's not just an intellectual exercise, but God works through our minds. We're transformed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so uh, there is preaching that, that informs the mind. That is important. And then there's preaching the word. 
being relevant is preaching a word that involves moral clarity. And that's uh, gathered up in the word of rebuke. Whether sin needs to be rebuked or it's more a matter of pointing out um, the path of righteous and holy living, we need to be real and to the point. There needs to be moral clarity uh, to our preaching, and that makes it relevant. And then people also need exhortation. They need to be, their emotional needs to, need to be addressed. People may be haunted by fears. Uh, they may be hounded by discouragement. There may be a host of other troubling circumstances uh, in their lives that are called for encouragement. They call for inspiration. They call for reassurance. And so uh, our preaching of the word needs to be relevant. We need to address the mind. We need to speak with moral clarity. And we need to understand that we're, we're people of emotions, that we need to be, we need our pats on the back and our, our being lifted up and lift up the heavy hands and, and strengthen the feeble knees and that sort of thing. And then, as we preach uh, the word, we must be redemptive. In other words, we're preaching for, uh, for people's salvation and we're preaching for their for their spiritual growth. We're, we're trying to be redemptive. And it speaks of that here again in verse 2 when it says, with all uh, long-suffering and doctrine. I know that some of us are more like prophets with a bullhorn and some of us are more like teachers. And we see the nuance of things. We see this side and we see that side. And some people see they're with a the bullhorn and it's all it's more black and white with them there's, there's that difference uh, between us as preachers and there's there's uh, strengths and weakness of each of that but all of us all of us should preach the word with doctrine with teaching in other words there is this instructive aspect whether we're uh, whether we're prophetic in our teaching or whether we really are Teacher teachers, teaching preachers, there needs to be instruction. And so with all doctrine, with all, with all teaching, uh, it's doctrinal preaching. It rests on biblical truth and it's instructive. It explains and shows why, uh, how, what. You know, little children will say, why? Because I told you to. Well, we believe in adult baptism. We believe in adult membership. And you just don't tell adults because I told you to. Uh, we really minister in the church by the consent of the brotherhood. Uh, they will leave or they will make it to where we will leave. But it, isn't it true that ultimately we serve by the consent of the brotherhood? Now, I'm not talking about the salaried preacher and, and you have to please the people and all that. But what I'm saying is it is important that we conduct ourselves. I mean, sometimes there comes to a time that it's... This is, we do need to live on the thing. This is the Word of God. But we need to conduct ourselves in, in a way that we are teaching people that they want to. Uh, they want to because it's God's Word. They want to because they are... 
And we're not just around throwing our weight around and telling them, well, you've got to do this because I'm the preacher or I'm the bishop. That's what I'm talking about. Um, they will find another church or they will make it uncomfortable for us and we'll feel like finding another church. And so this thing of, of being redemptive in our preacher, preaching, that we, we are, that we instruct, we teach. There's a reason the qualifications for Minister has to do with one who is apt to teach. One who is apt to instruct. Redemptive preaching, uh, preaching that is seeking to lead people into and within a saving relationship with God, uh, also means that we're not preaching to, to just nail people to the wall or to blow them out of the water, um, hang them out to dry, or any other unworthy and counterproductive agenda. Rather, we're to preach the word with all long-suffering, it says. With great patience. You know, we like to see immediate changes and uh, results from our preaching. Of course, we like God to be patient with us, don't we? And so, we must be patient with others. In chapter 2 of Second Timothy, verses 24 to 26, it says this, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and, they, that, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him and his will. And so, our demeanor, our, our approach, one of humility, one of meekness, one of, of long-suffering, this may be re referring more specifically of the verses I read to people perhaps who are not believers or who are really rebellious, but just in, in normal congregational life and, and preaching, uh, a, a, a long-suffering, a patience, understanding that God has been patient with us and that, that we have grown and we still have growing to do and as much as we'd like to accelerate the pace uh, or to see more rapid response in some people and all that, there needs to be long-suffering. Preach redemptively. In conclusion, preach the word. And may the Lord bless you as you do that.